The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. This is Dr. Susan, and this is Occupy Health. We've occupied Wall Street, and now it's time to take back our health. We'll learn from experts so we can take steps on the road to good health. With us today, we have the honor of Dr. Perlmutter. Uh, He is a board-certified neurologist, fellow of the American College of Nutrition, and four-time New York Times best-selling author. He's received his MD from the University of Miami School of Medicine, where he was awarded the Lennon G. Roundtree Research Award. He's published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals, including Archives of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and the Journal of Applied Nutrition. He's a frequent lecturer at Symposia, Spanish, Sp- he's a frequent lecturer at Symposia, sponsored by such medical institutions such as Columbia University, Scripps Institute, New York University, and Harvard University. He's an associate professor at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Dr. Promuter has been interviewed on many nationally syndicated TV programs, including 2020, Larry King Live, CNN, Fox News, Fox and Friends, The Today Show, Oprah, The Dr. Oz Show, and The CBS Early Show. He's a recipient of the prestigious Linus Pauling Award for his innovative approaches to neurological disorders. He's also the recipient of the 2006 National Nutrition Foods Association Clinician of the Year and was awarded the Humanitarian of the Year Award for the American College of Nutrition in 2010. Uh, It's my honor to introduce you to Dr. Perlmutter. Well, Susan, it's uh, delightful to be here. Actually, if I may, the uh, the newest book is called The Grain Brain Whole Life Plan, which came out several weeks ago. So I thought I'd just update that for you a little bit. Oh, so much looking forward to it. Okay. Well, let's get started. Uh, there seems to be such an increase in brain diseases, Alzheimer's, dementia. And as we're getting older, we're all worried about these. So why is this increasing so much? I think the uh, the overriding principle here is that lifestyle choices strongly relate to Alzheimer's risk. And that kind of is a bitter pill to swallow because, you know, we've been sort of told to live our lives come what may, and then hopefully there'll be a magic pill for us to take to lower our this or that, raise our this or that. And uh, turns out that with the brain and with Alzheimer's, there is no such treatment. There is no such pill. Um, despite the fact that neurologists prescribe uh, medication for millions of Alzheimer's patients here in America. No meaningful treatment exists. And that said, uh, it's, uh, it's time that we focus on preventive measures. And 
Uh, as such, as you well characterize, this is an increasing problem that relates to such things as obesity and diabetes, both of which are strongly influenced by our lifestyle choices, including the foods that we eat and the exercise that we do or don't get. So having said that, you know, it's really time, and I, I commend you for it, to have this conversation where we begin to look at the science, not just your, you know, the guest on your program today, my ideas, but what does the actual science say about things we can do to lower our risk for disease that otherwise has no treatment? Wow. So what can we do to minimize our risk for these Somehow, I knew you were going to ask that question. <laughs> and uh, I think um, more than anything else, we've got to control our blood sugar. Elevated blood sugar opens the door to let Alzheimer's in. It's that simple. How do we know that? Well, we can go back to the year 2013 in September when a wonderful study appeared in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine. And what did they find? They followed a group of, of individuals, uh, elderly individuals, however, who did not have dementia. And at the beginning of the study, what they looked at was one simple measurement, and that is their uh, blood sugar. That's all they looked at. And, and that said, they then followed these individuals for a, a number of years, and they determined who became demented and who didn't. Now, this was a, uh, a large study that uh, really looked at uh, you know, several thousand people, followed them for about 6.8 years, and in the group, over 2,000 individuals didn't have dementia, uh, about four, um, 500 of them developed dementia. And what they found was a perfect correlation in terms of risk for developing dementia with the initial blood sugar at the beginning of the study, meaning blood sugar today, your blood sugar when you go to the doctor, uh, predicts your risk for this situation. And this is a study done at Harvard. So we can control our blood sugar right away today by making changes in the food that we eat. Eat sugar, your blood sugar goes up. Eat fat, your blood sugar stays in a healthy range. So right off the bat, rule number one is to cut the sugar, cut the, the uh, processed carbohydrates, and welcome fat back to the table. Not just any fat, but the healthful fats, the olive oil, coconut oil, the fats that you'll find in grass-fed beef, wild fish, free-range chicken, eggs. Eggs are a wonderful health food for the brain and for the heart. What a revelation that is. You know, to this day, uh, people are so worried about eating egg yolks because if they eat them, something terrible will happen. The reality is that's where all the nutrients are. So... You know, despite that, you still see egg white omelets listed on the menu. So diet is front, upfront and uh, very important in terms of keeping you from getting Alzheimer's disease. A wonderful study published uh, by Mayo Clinic researchers uh, in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease looked at if, uh, what was your risk of getting Alzheimer's if your diet favored fat or if your diet favored carbohydrate, which is what most Americans do. And the study really was quite uh, powerful, uh, demonstrating that those individuals who looked like they ate more carbohydrate, um, that 88% of them, uh, they were at an 88% increased risk for developing dementia, whereas uh, those subjects who ate more fat as a calorie source had about a 40% reduced risk for 
are becoming demented. Now, this was a large study of 937 uh, individuals uh, published in January of 2012, again, in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, a highly regarded peer-reviewed journal telling us that eating more fat is associated with reduced risk of Alzheimer's. Eating more carbs is associated with a dramatic increased risk of developing that disease, again, for the third time, a disease for which we have no treatment. So we've got to emphasize the fundamental importance of lifestyle choices in terms of what our most well-respected research institutions are telling us so we can avoid being in that situation where we're now walking into the room and forgetting why, where we have to go through a list of all of our children's names until we stumble upon the right one when we're talking to a kid. You know, those types of things are... We laugh about them saying, oh, that's just a senior moment, when in reality, those are harbingers for much, much more serious issues uh, in, the, in the near term. So if we walk into a room and forget why we walked into the room, uh, what does that mean in terms for uh, going toward dementia? Well, again, these are um, indicators that things upstairs are not working right. Now, I'm not going to say that if you walked into the room one day and couldn't remember why you, you were there because you were a little preoccupied or multitasking, that, that means, uh, end of story, you're going to end up with Alzheimer's disease. Of course not. But what I'm saying is when we start to accumulate these senior moments and we start to uh, notice that they're becoming more and more frequent, that is a sign that things upstairs are not working appropriately. And that said, um, now we are already on the road, and that's a dangerous place to be. My mission in life is to keep people cognitively intact, keep their brains totally functional, and dramatically reduce people's risk for Alzheimer's disease. Right now, today, Susan, as you and I have this conversation. Thank you. Um, what other th- steps can we take to make sure we don't go further down this terrible path? The other very important lifestyle choice is exercise. Uh, a new study that came out from uh, UCLA uh, by Dr. Um, Kirk Erickson and his group demonstrated that there is probably about a 50% reduced risk of developing dementia if you engage in exercise compared to those individuals who don't. And it's aerobic exercise, and it's about 20 minutes, six or seven days a week. That actually activates genes that code for a, a chemical that actually nurtures the brain and allows your brain to grow new brain cells. It's, it's pretty remarkable. And, uh, you know, so what am I saying? We've got to keep our blood sugars low, eat more fiber, eat more fat, less sugar, and we've got to exercise. Those two lifestyle changes alone will be infinitely more dramatic than any drug that's going to be developed in the next 20 years. So, you know, in a nutshell, those are the factors that dramatically affect your brain's destiny, and that is a choice that you can make. We know that higher levels of blood sugar, for example, are associated with shrinkage of the brain's memory center, an area of the brain that is called the hippocampus. This was published in October of 2013 in a journal called Neurology, which is the journal of the American Academy of Neurology, very well respected. And they demonstrated that higher levels of blood sugar compared to the size of the brain's memory center on a special type of MRI scan, there's a perfect uh, uh, correlation between higher levels of blood sugar and shrinkage 
of your brain's memory center, which is something that very strongly correlates to Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, what can I say? The only other correlate that really matters is the size of your belly. When you look at studies uh, that look at what is called waist-to-hip ratio, a ratio of your belly size to the size of your waist, it demonstrates uh, that the bigger your belly, the smaller is your brain's memory center. Again, and that is a strong correlate with reference to Alzheimer's risk. Is there anything else that overweight, uh, any other ways that it contributes to Alzheimer's? Well, of course, being overweight is associated with higher blood sugar. And being overweight is also interestingly associated with higher levels of chemicals in the body called cytokines, which are related to causing inflammation. Inflammation is what causes the brain to degenerate in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis. Inflammation is the cornerstone even of autism. So, and even depression for that matter. So having said that, we've got to keep ourselves thinner. And the way to stay thin is to eat more fat. Who knew? What, uh, what kinds of fats? There's so many fats out there, and a lot of people are taking coconut oil and MCTs. Um, and what, ki- what happens if you take the wrong kind of fat? Well, that's a very good question because, you know, your sunflower oil, corn oil, safflower oil that you see on the grocery store shelf, that might have been there for six months and looks really wonderful, nice and clear, uh, in a clear bottle. These are highly modified fats. They've been damaged and changed in such a way as to increase their shelf life. They're lethal for your heart. They're lethal for your immune system. They're lethal for your brain. Why? Because they contain an overriding uh, increase in what are called omega-6 fatty acids, which are dramatically associated with inflammation. And even the modification of these fats doesn't allow them to to be used as building blocks to build healthy brain cells. So we really want to avoid those. And instead, we want to gravitate towards butter, organic butter. Who knew? Butter is wonderful. It's a health food uh, for the brain. Coconut oil, uh, extra virgin olive oil. I don't go a day without extra virgin olive oil. I think the, the fat that you'll find in nuts and seeds... Uh, the fat that's found in uh, free-range chicken eggs, the chicken, the, the wild fish, the grass-fed beef, these are good fats for your body. They're good fats for your brain. As a matter of fact, uh, the, the latter contains uh, actually healthy levels of what is called saturated fat. turns out that saturated fat uh, is good for the brain. It's good for the body. All these years we were told uh, to avoid saturated fat because, again, it was thought to be so dangerous for us. A wonderful review article by Dr. Glenn Lawrence appeared in Advances in Nutrition way back in 2013. And he um, really, I think, set the record straight with reference to the importance of saturated fat in terms of health. You know, 50% of the fat in human breast milk is saturated fat, and that helps to build uh, a more perfect brain for, for a newborn. Uh, what about canola oil? Well, canola oil is um, really not looked upon as, as being a health food. Canola oil, the can, uh, C-A-N, is, um, comes from the word, oh, the name Canada, and um, uh, it actually is derived from what is called uh, rapeseed oil. And uh, it really isn't, um, you know, what we would consider to be a health food. We, um, you know, some have really uh, called attention to the fact 
that um, this is a dangerous oil. We know that even as long ago as 2005, that close to 90% of the canola grown in the United States was GMO. Uh, And that uh, has to do with Canada as well. 90% of uh, the Canadian crop, at least, uh, is uh, genetically modified. And that brings up another point we'll talk about in a few minutes. But um, understand, again, that this is... um, uh, this was originally designed as an industrial uh, lubricant, and that's what it was used for around the turn of the century, also used in making things like soap and candles, but mostly to be used as an industrial uh, lubricant. Uh, it, is, um, it does have some omega-3 fats in it, but uh, I, I wouldn't go near this... Um, you know, this very, very dangerous oil that uh, has likely been sprayed with a, an herbicide called glyphosate. Um, it it um, does have some vitamin E. It, it has some vitamin K. Uh, but otherwise, uh, I, I think that there's very little, um, you know, redeeming value for it. Uh, a, it. It has far more, about twice as much um, omega-6 as it does omega-3. So, uh, again, it's gen- genetically modified. It's often uh, partially hydrogenated or hydrogenated so that it will increase its, its shelf life. That's exactly what we don't uh, want to be consuming. That builds brain cells that are less functional. Um, this product is bleached. Uh, it is highly refined, so uh, generally treated at very, very high temperatures in order to, to actually manufacture it. So nothing I would go near, near to. Well, there's one well-known, supposedly, health store that claims their canola oil is organic. What do you have to say about that? Well, uh, it can't be organic by definition if it comes from genetically modified seeds. So, uh, you know, have at it, but I I don't, uh, I would like to see that. You know, I'd like to see where they're saying they're getting that. Okay. Uh, Before we get to genetically modified uh, produce and uh, glyphosate. One other question. There's been some literature about olive oil being tainted and having a lot of unpleasant things in it. So how can we ensure we get good quality olive oil? First of all, that's a brilliant uh, entree because uh, more than 70% of the olive oil available in America may well not even be olive oil. I would call your listeners' attention to a book called Real Food, Fake Food, by Larry Olmsted, and uh, I'm actually interviewing him later today, oddly enough, uh, and he really uh, lays it out for us in terms of uh, what is going on, what we've been sort of bamboozled to believe uh, in reference to um, what is going on in our olive oil. So uh, this stuff that, that passes for olive oil is... is uh, Scary stuff. I mean, again, uh, at least up to 80% of the so-called extra virgin olive oil in the United States uh, isn't extra virgin, meaning it hasn't been cold-pressed, and may not even be olive oil. Uh, we want olive oil. Olive oil is wonderful for our health. Uh, one study demonstrates that those who consume high levels of olive oil, like a liter a week, which is what I, I consume, may have as much as a 40% reduced risk for breast cancer as well as dementia. So... Uh, you know, we've got to be super careful. Generally, when you go to a restaurant and ask for olive oil, almost uh, almost all the time, it is not even going to be olive oil itself. So you have to be 
uh, super careful, and get used to what the taste of olive oil really is. It has a little peppery burn at the, at the finish in the back of your throat when you inhale. Uh, if it doesn't have that, on, it's not likely to be olive oil. And again, uh, you know, even some of the nicer restaurants that I've been in, it was never olive oil, and you've got to be very careful. To the extent that sometimes when my wife and I go out, we bring our own olive oil and just sneak it onto the plate. Who would know? So, how, in a store, what do you look for? How can you make sure well, you get tough the good call. stuff? I mean, uh, you know, some brands that we um, uh, we would respect, uh, uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, it, it's a bit of a surprise. So, I'd say that um, it's very, very difficult to um, uh, to determine just by looking at a bottle. Is that um, you know, is that necessarily uh, a good olive oil or not? So uh, we order our own from uh, olive, vineyard, olive uh, groves that we know of uh, and, um, and import or grow locally like in California. Uh, but you can't really tell by going to the health food stores. Okay. Well, now you brought up genetically modified produce and glyphosate. So how does that figure into uh, brain deterioration? A wonderful question, and I think for your listeners, they're probably scratching their heads, uh, asking, "Well, how could there be any relationship uh, between um, you know this trendy idea of going non-GMO and and brain health?" Well, it turns out that by and large, the reason uh, that our food is genetically modified uh, is because uh, when you modify the seeds of the corn or of the soy. Uh, it allows you to spray the crop with poison, which it will kill the weeds, but it won't kill the plant. So they are what we call Roundup-resistant. You can spray the crop with Roundup. The active ingredient is called glyphosate. And the corn is just as fine as can be, not really, uh, but the weeds are killed. So we're using about 1.35 metric tons of Roundup on the planet every year right now. The problem with Roundup is it alters the gut bacteria in humans. And as, so, as such, that increases inflammation. When you change the gut bacteria, it leads to increased leakiness of the gut. That increases inflammation. And again, we've got to understand that inflammation is the cornerstone mechanism of every degenerative condition that we don't want to get, including diabetes, cancer, coronary artery disease, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So I just drew a connection between glyphosate, this herbicide being sprayed on our crops, and cancer. You heard me say it. And as it turns out, the World Health Organization, publishing in the journal The Lancet last year, determined that glyphosate itself is probably a human carcinogen. So they agreed that this chemical being sprayed on our food around the globe is probably a carcinogen, meaning a cancer-causing agent, and likely it does so by changing our immunity through alteration of our gut bacteria. Uh, my college roommate, Stephanie Seneff, had done some research Oh, she's in the area. one. That's your college roommate. Oh, my We gosh. lived together three years. Can you imagine that oh, scene? My, well, she is the one uh, who... Um, you know, really receives uh, the credit for bringing this information to to light. If, if uh, your listeners visit uh, my website, which is uh, drpromutter, com, you'll see a wonderful video uh, interview that I did with Dr. Seneff, and she talks all about it. 
we have an online program called the Empowering Neurologist, and she did a, an amazing job and continues to do such incredible work. Uh, so, so there you go. Okay. Uh, you mentioned inflammation. So tell us uh, how can we avoid inflammation? Because it sounds like, from what you say, that it's at the basis of all of our diseases, and it sounds like the gut is heavily involved in this. So could you tell us more about that? I will. And you just, you know, at the tail end of that, you said the gut is heavily involved with that. How amazing it is for all of us whose specialties were not in the gut, cardiologists, neurologists, rheumatologists, uh, oncologists, all of us whose specialties took us out of the gut, to realize that the gut is, the, is, the, is where it all begins. Uh, and it all begins at the layer of one cell thick that separates inside the gut from outside the gut. When that one cell layer is compromised, it allows chemicals from the gut, proteins and things, to get out and stimulate the immune system, and that amps up inflammation. So all of us, whether we're treating coronary artery disease, diabetes, cancer, or even Alzheimer's, have got to come back to focus on the primary role of the gut as being the modifier in the human body of inflammation. Again, as you well mentioned, the cornerstone of the very diseases that we dread. Wow, I understand. Yeah. Okay, so what things put our gut in jeopardy that um, laid us down this terrible pathway to various diseases? I think the biggest uh, leverage point comes uh, with respect to our food choices. So diets that are higher in sugar, lower in fiber, and especially diets that use artificial sweeteners are you know, basically deadly uh, for the gut bacteria. They dramatically reduce the diversity, changing the gut bacteria significantly, and that paves the way for immune issues and inflammatory issues. What we want is a diet that's higher in what is called prebiotic fiber. That is the type of fiber that nurtures the gut bacteria. Fermented foods like kimchi and kombucha and cultured yogurt, uh, these are foods that are rich in good probiotic bacteria that nurture the gut bacteria. We've got to feed those bacteria, again, with what is called prebiotic fiber. And that comes from foods like jicama and asparagus, garlic, onions, leeks, dandelion greens, chicory, root, these are foods that nurture the gut bacteria. Now, one of the biggest issues, aside from food, uh, that tends to threaten the gut bacteria dramatically happens to be the various medications that we take. And uh, certainly on the very top of the list would be antibiotics, which kill bacteria. So, uh, you know, we, uh, it's really quite clear that we are dramatically overusing uh, antibiotics in our society and really worldwide. The, the World Health Organization characterizes overuse of antibiotics as one of the top three uh, health threats to the planet in this decade, not just because of the creation of what are called superbugs, which are resistant to treatment, but more so because of their effects upon the gut bacteria. When you damage these gut bacteria, you set the stage for obesity and diabetes as well as inflammation. So, there are strong correlates seen between uh, the consumption of antibiotics, for example, and a dramatic increased risk for type 2 diabetes. This study was done in Denmark and had several 
8,000 individuals followed for 14 years and showed a perfect correlation, perfect correlation between the number of antibiotics a person took during that period of time and their risk for developing type 2 diabetes. So change the gut bacteria, you open the door for obesity, diabetes, and immune problems as well as inflammation. I think there will ultimately be studies that demonstrate increased risk of things like Alzheimer's and coronary artery disease based upon antibiotic exposure as well. Keep in mind that 70% of the antibiotics used in America are actually used in animals, the very animals that we then eat. So this commercial production of beef, for example, and poultry, these animals are generally aggressively treated with antibiotics. And why do they do that? Because it makes these animals fat. It does the same thing in humans. A wonderful book by uh, NYU researcher Martin Blazer is called Missing Microbes. And he very squarely uh, puts some of the blame uh, for uh, this pediatric and adolescent obesity crisis that we have in America on the number of antibiotics that we are giving our children. So I think, you know, the golden age of antibiotics, gratefully, is hopefully going to come to a close. Uh, yes, it's great that we have these drugs to, keep, to treat bacterial infections, but I think it's time that we step back a little bit and recognize, you know, that there is a very serious potential downside to this, uh, you know, these wonder drugs. I'd just like to add a couple comments to that. I understand they feed the animals the antibiotics to fatten them up so they look more luscious when they're in a butcher shop. And I also understand that diabetes increases the risk for Alzheimer's disease, what was it, about four times? So just That's going right. down so, that you pathway know, uh, is a bad thing. In a lot thing. of my discussions, um, you know, I'm talking about diabetes, and a very good point, and that is that if you become a type 2 diabetes, you may have quadrupled your risk for Alzheimer's disease. That's why, for, for me, in my specialty in neurology, that's why we're all over this type 2 diabetes because, you know, even if you're controlling your blood sugar with drugs, you're still at increased risk for developing Alzheimer's and heart disease and cancer by becoming a type 2 diabetic. So, very important. I understand each time our blood sugar goes really high or contrary, it goes very low, that is an insult to our brain that can start off a cascade of inflammation. That's right. Um, so, uh, again, there is this powerful connection between uh, chronic elevation of blood sugar and even blood sugar spikes uh, with respect to functionality of the brain. We all grew up in a time when we were told, oh, the brain runs on sugar. You need to have lots of blood sugar so that your brain will, will work well. And I needed to eat a candy bar before my SATs just to make sure my blood sugar was high. Nothing is further from the truth. The brain is far more able to utilize fat as a fuel source than sugar. Matter of fact, fat has been the primary source of fuel for the brain for about 2.4 million years. Basically, as long as we've been here, we've powered the brain with fat. It is only very, very recently that the brain has been given such a high level of blood sugar, it's doing its best to use it, but when we deprive our bodies of sugar and use fat as a calorie source, the brain will shift over and be far more efficient, won't have peaks and valleys, won't elevate uh, insulin levels, which then lead to increased body fat, Fat is the preferred fuel of the brain and the preferred fuel of the entire rest of the body. Wow. Very interesting. 
Um, I also understand, let's go back a little bit to the gut, because I understand that the composition of the gut, we want it to be well diversified, and there are many things that shift that in a very negative pattern. So I'd like to get back to that. Um, So what are the things that... uh, Make the like. I understand that way the person is born. If they come down the vaginal canal and they have exposure to the mother's good bacteria, that that affects the microbiome. That breastfeeding affects the microbiome. Uh, if you're in a urban area as opposed to a rural area, it affects the microbiome. And the fact that we need to be exposed to dirt, we need to be exposed to microbes. Excessive cleaning and sterile environment is not good for our guts. Anyway, we're coming close to an advertisement at this point. So we're going to take a little break and we'll be back right after this commercial. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. As we age, our health can decline. For some, it's a slow, even process, while for others, it can happen at a much faster rate. The health decline can start in people as young as their 30s. Did you know a lot of age-related diseases can be prevented, reversed, or eliminated? It's true. You'll find out more every week on Healthy Aging with Dr. Denise Bogard. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. It's your life. Keep it going well. You are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. That's Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back. This is Dr. Susan speaking with Dr. Promuter, who's had such interesting things to say, which can really help us on our pathway to good health. So we were talking about the microbiome and the importance of diversity in the bacteria in the microbiome. Uh, what kind of things affect this uh, balance within our Well, first, let me say again, it's so very important for health that we maintain this diversity, as you you well described, that we have this rich number of different species living within us, and we cater to each and every one of them. When we begin to lose that diversity, in other words, when we begin to uh, have a diet that's not nurturing of our gut bacteria, when we're eating uh, food that's, uh, you know, going to increase uh, the damage to the good bacteria, when we're drinking water that has chlorine in it, when we're drinking beverages with artificial sweeteners, these things threaten the the gut bacteria. In our last segment, we touched upon the real important issue with reference to overusage of antibiotics as it relates to the microbiome as well. 
And I'd like to comment that there are certainly other things that are profoundly threatening to the gut bacteria as well uh, from a medication perspective. For example, we know that the so-called proton pump inhibiting drugs, these are these uh, medications that everybody thinks they need to take to block their stomach acid. These PPIs that you see advertised on the evening news, everybody is told they should take this or that, are actually powerfully threatening to the gut bacteria. A recent study uh, was published uh, by Stanford researchers, very, very robust study that demonstrated a 16% increased risk of heart attack in individuals that are chronically taking these acid-blocking drugs, and the risk of death from that heart attack was doubled. Another study that just was published by the American Medical Association showed that those individuals who are chronically taking these acid-blocking drugs that are over-the-counter, many of them, have a 40% increased risk of developing dementia. And by and large, it is felt that the reason there is such a strong association uh, of uh, consumption of these drugs to various disease processes, including um, osteoporosis, uh, a life-threatening diarrheal illness called um, Clostridium difficile, the reason is because of the changes, as mentioned, to the diversity of the gut bacteria. These acid-blocking drugs change the pH or the acidity of the stomach, but not just the stomach, they change the pH of the entire rest of the gastrointestinal system, including the intestines and the colon, and as such, you're changing the environment in which these bacteria live. Some species will survive, but not all. Some will die off. And that is really a fairly a profound event because now we're reducing balances. We're reducing diversity. Some species will then overgrow, and you can have a potentially life-threatening event like Clostridium difficile, which affects about three to 400,000 Americans a year and may kill 30,000 of us. Uh, so we've really got to concentrate on drugs like the proton pump inhibiting acid-blocking drugs, as well as the non-steroid uh, anti-inflammatory drugs, these NSAIDs, the ibuprofens, uh, the Aleves, uh, the Motrins that uh, everybody thinks, the Naprosins, the Proxin that everybody thinks they need to take for every little ache and pain. Again, like I mentioned earlier with respect to antibiotics, this is not a free ride. Uh, there are significant uh, potential side effects here that people very much need to be aware of. These all threaten uh, the gut bacteria and are now in well-respected journals being demonstrated to be associated with significant health risk. I've had this argument with my GI doctor who refuses to come on the show, and he says, oh, PPIs don't really reduce the stomach acid, That you know, all this stuff is ill-founded. How do I respond to that? Uh, I think that the level playing field has to be one that respects our most well-respected peer-reviewed journals. The two studies I quoted to you, one was a study from Stanford, uh, which I think we'd all agree is a well-respected organization, and the other was published by the American Medical Association in the journal of the American Medical Association specialty journal called Neurology. Uh, And so I think that You know, you you bring these papers in, you put them on the desk, you say, I appreciate what you're saying, but this is what the current leading edge of science is telling us. You know, it's some people uh, 
don't want science to get in the way of a perfectly good emotional decision. So um, if people want to have their opinions, fine, but you've got to ask, what is your opinion founded on? You know, you can have an opinion, but what I'm portraying to you is opinion that's based on what is our most well-respected uh, literature telling us. And if you do have to take a PPI, which is an antacid proton pump inhibitor, what kind of things can you do to protect your gut during the time you have to take that? Well, um, you know, I think before we get there, let's take a step back and recognize that if you're taking a proton pump inhibitor, realize that these drugs are really only designed to be taken for a few weeks at a time. Uh, They're used for treatments uh, of uh, excessive stomach acid secretion in people who have a gastric tumor or who may have an ulcer or may have something called Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, all kinds of interesting medical conditions. But by and large, they're not to be taken long-term. And yet people, once they get on these drugs, uh, can't stop them because what happens, interestingly, is when you stop suppressing stomach acid, it rebounds uh, with a vengeance, and then people really do have a problem. So I would say even long before we get to the point of saying, well, you need to take a proton pump inhibitor, why don't we try things like figuring out which foods are irritating to you and eliminating them. Uh, If, in fact, you still are having issues, you might want to try a health food store product called DGL, deglycerated licorice, uh, which works wonderfully by increasing the production of chemicals that protect the stomach lining and, and protect the esophagus as well. So there are lots of things we can do before we reach for the drug. And yet, you know, the easy way out for people, based upon what they see on the evening news in terms of the commercials, is, hey, take the, the drug, you know, the Prilosec, the Zegarid, the, uh, you name it, the purple pill, the Paisley pill, you name it. People take it, but please understand it is not a free ride. You mentioned uh, chlorine in the water. What about fluoridation of the water? Does that affect the gut? That's a very good question. And when you do a um, uh, a search for fluoride and microbiome, you don't really come up with a lot. So I don't think a lot of people have um, have really looked at that yet. Uh, so it's an excellent question. I've I've puzzled over that myself and have um, you know have looked at that. So uh, uh, that said. Uh, I think we're going to see more publications come out about uh, with reference to that soon. Okay. Uh, so what kind of things can we do to prevent inflammation, since that seems to be the cornerstone of all the illnesses that we can imagine? I think that, it, again, dare I say, it comes back to making the right food choices. So when we're eating a high prebiotic fiber diet that's rich in the type of fiber, not just any fiber, but specifically prebiotic fiber that nurtures the gut bacteria, that's a powerful way to reduce inflammation. We are now seeing studies uh, that demonstrate improvements in things like asthma in children in whom nothing has happened except they've increased their dietary fiber. As a matter of fact, a study came out just a couple of weeks ago showing improved cognitive performance in children who had the highest level of dietary fiber. It all gets back to nurturing the, the gut bacteria, and then that helps to rebuild the gut lining, reduce the permeability of the gut lining, and that reduces um, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the formation of uh, inflammation. Um, another uh, trend that people think is a fad uh, is glu- uh, avoiding gluten. So tell us your opinions on gluten and how that affects our gut and our brain health. 
Gluten also increases gut permeability. That was recently published by Harvard researchers who demonstrated that gluten induces increased permeability in the gut. Uh, not gluten per se, but the gliadin that gluten contains, a, a side protein, if you will. It increases the permeability of the gut, certainly in people who have celiac disease, in people who have so-called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. But what the researchers demonstrated last year uh, was that this is now uh, was found to be occurring in all humans, that there is increased permeability brought on by exposure to gliadin, a protein found in gluten, in all humans, not just those who have celiac disease. So is you know the world going to come to an end if you eat gluten? Obviously it isn't, but I look upon it as yet another straw on the camel's back. I understand gluten has more than one component, of which is gliadin. And so would the measure for the anti-gliadin antibody tell you if you've got gluten sensitivity or not? Well, I think that um, it will, uh, but it doesn't mean that you have to have antibodies against gliadin uh, to be sensitive to gluten. Again, uh, we now know that the gliadin uh, increases permeability in everyone. So my answer is, Everybody is gluten-sensitive to some degree, and everyone should avoid gluten. Now, that sounds draconian, but I'm doing my very, very best to, uh, to really give people as much good information as I see it, um, and, and so they can make the best choices. Maybe it's not going entirely gluten-free if that doesn't suit you, but it might just be not pounding your body with gluten every single day in the form of pasta and bread and cereals and sauces and so many sources of gluten. I understand from other readings that you know if, the, if your gut is permeable and the gluten gets out and our body mounts up a defense uh, against the gluten, that these antibodies will also attack other parts of the body because they're genetically similar. For example, the genetic material of the thyroid, the islet cells in the pancreas, and the Purkinje cells in the brain are similar so that these antibodies might cross-react and start up autoimmune diseases. There's something called glutenataxia where we have trouble walking. Um, so I understand that gluten can have a lot of long-term effects that we uh, be hard to anticipate. You're correct, and uh, frankly, that's why I wrote a book about it. Uh, that's why I wrote Grain Brain. And I, I wanted to call attention uh, to the idea that, yes, sugar is bad for the brain, but also gluten is bad for the brain. You know, we quoted uh, references of over 400 references from around the world in that book, uh, the work of a Dr. Marius Hajivasalu in, in Britain, who has, in fact, explored what you've talked about, this uh, gluten ataxia, uh, but also a variety of brain-related issues, including so-called brain fog uh, and even headaches being related to gluten. And how, you know, there's not necessarily a good blood test to determine that. The, the gold standard is really putting people on a gluten-free diet and seeing how they improve or not. That's how we know if, you know, at the end of the day, what relates to gluten sensitivity or, and what doesn't. And I'll tell you that a lot of people have read Grain Brain and had some really dramatic turnarounds in terms of various uh, brain-related issues. That book is now in 29 languages around the world. And we're get, you know, we get um, emails every single day, people posting on, on our site, describing uh, all kinds of neurologic things and other things, skin issues, joint pain, etc., better control of blood sugar, finally able to lose weight. 
sleeping better, better libido, uh, you know, all kinds of things improving when they get off this toxin. You know, it was about 12,000 years ago when the wheat plant was able to domesticate humans. So wheat domesticated us, and uh, we then spread this... uh, spread wheat's seeds around the world. So, you know, it, the wheat conspired to increase its, its range on the planet by using human beings uh, to spread its seeds. So, um, you know, there's no looking back. Wheat-derived products represent 40% of the foods that we consume in America, and it doesn't have to be that way. Can you eat just a little bit of gluten and get away with it? Well, you know, I, I always say it's like, uh, well, maybe a little bit of sniffing glue isn't going to be the end of the day, you know, end of the world. So I, I think it's best to do your ultimate to not, um, and not consume gluten. It's not, it, it's not going to make you healthy, and um, it is, um, you know, it's really worrisome. I also understand from reading your material that excessive cleanliness and preventing children from being exposed to germs and not letting them play in the dirt can have adverse effects on the microbiome and their future health. Is- That's right. Uh, you know, Dr. Strachan back in 1989 developed what was called the hygiene hypothesis. And that, you know, basically stated that our aversion to dirt, uh, our obsession with hygiene, you know, now we see these hand sanitizers at the end cap in the grocery store on every aisle, uh, that we've got to be exposed to germs. That makes us robust. A very uh, interesting study was published by a Dr. Melissa Fox, a researcher now at UCLA, but she did this research when she was at Oxford, and she demonstrated that those countries that have the least amount of hygiene have a very robust array of bacteria and parasites in their gut, and they have an incredibly low rate of Alzheimer's. Those countries like USA and Finland and Sweden, etc., that are really involved in hygiene excessively have the highest rates. And it, it, it points squarely back to this notion of, of being obsessed with hygiene. And uh, I would uh, call your um, listeners' attention to our, again, our website, because I did a nice interview with her, terrific, uh, very engaging, on the um, Empowering Neurologist uh, program. What about people who are using hand sanitizers all the time? Is that doing them good or not so good? I think there's a, you know, there's a, you got to wash your hands when uh, you are at risk for uh, picking something up from somebody and transmitting something. And I, I, uh, so I'm not saying we shouldn't be using hand sanitizers when the time is right. But the notion that our food has to be sterile and microwaving our food to kill bacteria as well as to cook it and, you know, drinking water that's got chlorine in it, even though you made lemonade or iced tea out of it, it doesn't magically make the chlorine go away. We've got to rethink this notion of, you know, uh, of being fearful of germs. Germs is a negative connotation. Uh, let's call them bacteria and other things, protozoa, viruses, etc. We have lived in this beautiful symbiotic relationship with our microbiome friends for as long as we've been on this planet, and it's nothing unique to humans. You know, this idea that we are invested with microbes and uh, live with them uh, has something that's been going on with life on this planet dating back to the sponges, so we're talking three to four hundred million years ago, that we have shared 
this biome with microorganisms. We share in their DNA. You know, 99% of the DNA, Susan, in and on your body isn't the DNA that you got from mom and dad. It's not that 23,000 genome. Uh, it is contained in the, the bacteria and other organisms that live in and on you. You are mostly them. Okay, so if we've got arterial artery disease in our brain, is there anything we can do to reverse it? And maybe we can talk a little bit about Dale Bredesen's work as well. I think we're, we're now beginning to see uh, research demonstrating that we can have an impact on improving blood supply to the brain. Uh, again, the narrowing of the blood vessels in the brain and anywhere else in the body, for that matter, including the heart, is an inflammatory process, by and large. So... That is, you know, getting back to our discussion earlier about the lifestyle choices that relate to reducing inflammation, all of those things. Increased dietary sugar, increased blood sugar, less dietary fat, and less fiber paves the way for increased inflammation, narrows arteries in the brain, narrows arteries in the heart, really throughout the body. Having said that, um, th- uh, th- this can, to some degree, b- degree, be reversed. We've also seen some really powerful a response in individuals with poor blood supply to the brain uh, using a technique called hyperbaric oxygen, where they are basically put in an oxygen chamber under pressure, the same chamber that is used for people who have scuba diving uh, injuries. And, uh, you know, there's been some great demonstrations, some really good science showing that this can, in fact, improve blood supply to the brain. Okay, I think we're getting close to the end of this wonderful interview. So some final points that our listeners can take away so they can make changes and um, have more control over their health destiny. Uh, Again, it's up to you. Um, These are not uh, choices that are going to land in your doctor's lap uh, for him or her to make for you. Uh, There is no treatment for Alzheimer's. That's 5.4 million Americans. Your risk for that disease, if you live to be age 85, is 50-50. Your risk for that disease, if you become a type 2 diabetic, is quadrupled. Your risk is dramatically increased if you favor sugar and carbs as a calorie source and if you don't exercise. The good side of of the message is you can offset your risk by reducing your dietary sugar, gaining some physical exercise, really go a long way to preventing that disease that we fear the most. I also understand there's been some wonderful work by Dr. Dale Bridison, who's connected with UCLA, and that he's actually finding Alzheimer's is being reversed um, with a proper combination of diet. This is a program tailored to the individual that is well worth looking into for folks that might be interested. That's right, and uh, Dr. Bredesen uh, actually in the, in the springtime has a wonderful book coming out uh, that describes his protocol. Uh, you know, modern medicine looks how, at how one drug might work and be monetized, you know, a blockbuster drug. Dr. Bredesen looked at this in quite a different way, and he looks at 36 different leverage points, diet, exercise, uh, stress reduction, vitamin D, lowering uh, blood sugar, etc., and has actually reversed Alzheimer's disease in uh, 9 of 10 patients. Yes, Dr. Bredesen has agreed to come on our show in April, so we very much look forward to his program. But some of his points are, as you were saying, there's so many different uh, 
uh, like he describes it as a roof with many holes in it. So uh, filling a couple of the holes, which are some of the weak parts in the body, leading to inflammation and some of these other various diseases, uh, can make an impact. And his no question. Uh, and uh, um, you know he uh, he's doing some great work. I would uh, just let your uh, viewers know uh, that uh, on our website, which is drperlmutter.com, is a very, very robust collection of really all the science that you and I have talked about today, as well as the interviews that I've done. So that's all there for people, you know, as well as knowing which foods contain gluten, looking at foods based upon their glycemic index. So I would encourage your listeners to visit the site and really gain as much information as they can. Uh, very well spoken. We have about one minute left. So uh, in summary, our, we can take our health somewhat in our own hands. We can make lifestyle choices that will get us on a pathway to minimize inflammation and the various culprits that come along with it, which might be oxidative stress, mitochondrial distress, methylation difficulties. We can take some actions into our own hands. So in summary, I would like to uh, thank you, Dr. Permuter. And I would also like to encourage all of our listeners to do your own research. Become more informed. So then you can take care of yourself and you can take care of others. This is Dr. Susan, and thank you for joining us. And I'll be speaking with you next week. We got the power to change the world. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.